Well, this morning we have the Lord's Supper. When we do that, some of you are new to our church, so you're not familiar with how we do the Lord's Supper. In just a moment, literally right now, as soon as I stop talking, we're going to have the invitation. First hour, we had a sweet lady come on profession of faith. First hour, we had a family come and join us. And so we give the invitation early for two reasons. One, most people that are going to make a commitment to Christ in a church service have come to the service for that purpose. This week, God's been dealing with you or in recent weeks, and you say, Pastor, I came today. My husband and I are here. My family's here. We'd like to make our commitment to Christ. Sometimes you say, I've come to know Christ this week, and I want to come let it be known, and I want to follow in baptism. Please come in just a moment and let one of our pastors know, and we'll go to work on that, get a date set. Some of you say, I've been visiting, Pastor, some for a week or two, some for some time. You say, I've just never joined, but today was the day I was going to join. Will you do that in just a moment when we sing? You come out from wherever you are, step out in the aisle, and come down the aisle, and our pastors will meet you. Rocky is here, who's the leader of our women's ministry. She's here to greet women. If you prefer as a lady to talk to a lady, we have a lady in the altar. If your person says, I'm happy with a pastor, we'll go have pastors in the altar. Today, maybe you're coming on to make a commitment to full-time Christian service. Or maybe there's another commitment you need to make. So we do the invitation early for two reasons. One, it allows you to come right now. We'll get your information. And that way you can go back to your seat and celebrate the Lord's Supper service with us in your seat. At the end of the service, those who have come now will get your information on a card. At the close of the service, we get a chance to celebrate. Because when people come to make commitments to Christ, I can't think of a better way to close the Lord's Supper and say, look who's come today. To join, the, to join the church or to come to know Christ and follow in baptism. What a great way to wrap up a service. So in a minute, when we stand to sing, this is the moment for you to come. If you say, I, I need to make a commitment to Christ. I want to join the church. I'd like to pray with somebody. While we're singing, you come. Once we finish singing, I've got a brief devotional, and then we're going to have the Lord's Supper, and we'll adjourn, all right? I want you to stand with me. I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to have our song of invitation. You come, pastors, if you're in the room, make your way here. Rocky's here. And we're going to pray together. Then we sing, and you come as God directs. Well, Father, this morning, we're very grateful to be celebrating Jesus. Together as a body of Christ, we come for one reason during this hour. All through the week, we have numerous appointments and various schedules. But for one hour, these, your people, come together for one purpose. And that's to meet with Jesus to sing about Jesus and open the word of God that talks about Jesus and today to eat at the table of the Lord's Supper that Jesus himself instituted from start to finish today. We just want to sing about you, worship you, hear from you, and talk to you in prayer. So Lord, please favor us with your presence, tabernacle among us. Help us to sense your nearness so close that we feel we could reach out and touch your hand, your face the hem of your garment. We pray today for Kevin and our friends in Columbia. We ask that as he's preaching there, many lives will be changed and hearts touched. We're so grateful you brought the trans home to us from Cambodia. How we thank you for them. And what a delight it is to have the Wilkerson's back in church here. They've been serving you abroad in Djibouti, but we're glad to have them today in Broken Era. Bless all of them to today how good it is to have lyric and sign the service. Let your hand of blessing rest upon them as young people. So as they go back, they likewise are ambassadors for Christ in a land that's far from us, but near to your heart. And now our Father, tabernacle here, open our hearts to your heart, 
our eyes to see your glory and let our mouths declare your praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Sing it out. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of on the day of the Lord's Supper because in a minute that's what we're going to be able to enjoy and symbol the body and blood that was shed for us what a powerful verse that is what can wash away my sin when you get before God do you ever have a moment when you just see all your ugliness when you come before the holy God do you have a time you see your sinfulness do you have those times you say God can you really forgive me I, I did it again Surely you've had those times say, what in the world, what in the world could cleanse me? That's what this song's about. What could wash away my sin? Did you hear the answer? Nothing. 
but the blood of Jesus. What, what could make me whole? So some people go to bed guilty and wake up feeling awful. But if you're a Christian, you go to bed aware of your salvation and wake up glorious for joy does come in the morning. So I've asked Kevin to lead us in this song, the first verse in the chorus, a cappella. In the first century when they gathered, they didn't have this many in the room. It's a small group, normally in a house, and they'd sing songs. The Bible says songs and hymns and spiritual songs. So that's what we're going to do. And he's going to lead us the way it would sound in the first century if they'd had this song. We're going to sing without instruments, just the voices of God's people. First verse in the chorus, let's sing it. Then we're going to have a message in the Lord's Supper. Kevin, lead us. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fountain, I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now, our Father, it's our privilege to examine the scriptures about the marvelous sacrifice Jesus made in our behalf. Thank you that your love was so tremendous for us that before the world ever was, you had determined you'd come after us and pay sin's penalty. Thank you for doing that, that we might be made whiter than snow and have life everlasting in the kingdom of heaven. We study you today with joy. We remember you today with honor because of what you've done for us. And we cling to you today knowing you already have us in the palm of your hand. And we are safe and secure there forevermore. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, I want to invite you to open your Bibles, if you would, to the sixth sixth chapter of the Gospel of John. We're going to look together today at a chapter, and I'm basically going to share with you one chapter. John 6 is an entire unit. And you don't understand, I won't understand as well the verses we're going to focus on at the close of the passage if you don't understand what went before. And the very best commentary on Scripture is Scripture. So this morning I want us to look at John chapter 6. I'm going to tell you the two miracles at the outset. We're going to start in verse 22 in just a minute. You know the first one is the feeding of the 5,000. The Bible said Jesus was there on the Sea of Galilee. And those of you who've been to Israel, you know where that spot traditionally is. If you've been to a good lake in Oklahoma, you've seen the one like Galilee. There's those places on a lake where there's just a gentle slope of a bank that goes up a hill. And it makes a natural amphitheater. Well, Jesus used that one, that site for this one because he taught the people all morning. And, you know, if you're in a boat just a little ways out, your voice carries. When it hits the water, it immediately bounces off the water and becomes a great magnifier. And so Jesus has been teaching all day, and the people were weary. And he asked, he asked the disciples, he asked Philip, we need to feed these people, or said we need to feed these people. Pete, uh, Philip was thinking in terms, uh, 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 or excuse me, Andrew was thinking in terms as a Baptist and not as a believer, and not as a Christ follower. He said, well, now, Lord, here's how much that costs. Take 200 days' wages to feed this many people. And suddenly Jesus said, I- I- I'm not asking you for a financial amount. 
And about that time, Philip spoke up and said, well, Lord, there's a boy here that has two loaves and two fish. How did he, five loaves and two fish, how did he know? Well, Philip, like me, would be looking while Jesus is preaching and say, boy, I'm getting hungry. I wonder if anybody here has got anything to eat I can sit with when the break comes. And he already knew there's a little boy there that had a sack lunch. And he not only knew the boy had lunch, he had gone over and said, hey, young man, what you got in there? And either the boy opened the basket or told him, I got five barley loaves and two fish. And he'd already made an arrangement. When he finishes preaching, can I come sit with you? And so when Jesus said, is there anybody here with any loaves? Is anybody here with anything to eat? He already knew. But he's going to see if Philip had owned up to it. He said, Philip said, well, Lord, there's one boy with a, with a lunch with five loaves and two fish. But what's that among so many? In other words, I, it's barely enough for the two of us that I'm really hungry. Jesus said to have the people sit down. It's spring of the year. That's what it says in John 6. Spring near Passover. We celebrate Easter in line with Passover. And so it's spring of the year. Boy, you know what spring's like? The sun's finally coming back out after the winter. Grass is green. It's pleasant. Everybody loves to be out. The breeze is gentle. You got the view of the Sea of Galilee before you. And it's just spectacular. And here on this green grass, Jesus said, have the people sit in groups of 50s and 100s. Uh, 50 and 100. Mark uses a word that says once that happened, they look like, in the Greek word, is a word used for flower beds. When they had all that yellow and green and blue and orange in their garments and they were scattered over the hillside, he said it looked something like somebody had taken that green hill and just planted flower beds all, all across it. What a great picture. The Bible has, you know, it tells a little boy, it tells Philip, go get the little boy, brings the sack lunch, and Jesus blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples, and all the people ate so much. The Bible says they were full, and the word means stuffed. It's the way you feel at Thanksgiving. That's how much they had to eat. So they used those loaves and fish to eat an enormous amount, and they were poor folks. They weren't accustomed to having that much to eat. And then he said, gather the fragments. You know, there were 12 baskets left, 12 disciples. They got the fragments, and they had more than enough. They had, in fact, they had more than they. In fact, they had more than they started. More than they started with, and that's what Jesus will do if you'll trust Him. He always blesses abundantly. And the second miracle is the miracle that happened late in the day. The Bible says that in the, the, the tone of how Jesus put the disciples in the boat indicates the disciples kind of decide we're going to be campaign managers. Why? If Jesus becomes the ruler, guess who the cabinet is. We, we, we'd have high positions. We won't be fishing anymore. We'd get to move down there to Jerusalem. We'd be somebodies. And so the inference is they suddenly heard the people say, boy, isn't he wonderful? And maybe the disciples said, yeah, wouldn't, wouldn't he make a great ruler? Sure beat that guy we got in office now. He can heal the sick. He can feed the multitudes. He cares about children. I'm telling you, he's a good speaker. Let, let's make him emperor. Jesus isn't looking for a campaign manager. He's looking for obedience. And the word in Greek says he forced the disciples, he compelled the disciples to get in boats and head across. And it's getting late in the day, about to be dark. Boys, you go on over to Capernaum, I'll meet you there. The Bible says he went up in the mountain to pray. And when they got in the fourth watch of night, that's between three and six, got really stormy, really, really stormy. Boys, and you're in a little boat at night in the storm. It's so bad that they were wondering what's going to happen. And they see somebody walking between 3 and 6 in the morning, fourth watch, and here he comes walking by them on the water. Peter said, Lord, if that's you, invite me, come. And you know the story. He steps out of the boat, makes a few steps, sees the wind and the waves, begins to sink. Jesus picks him up, puts him back in the boat, and he used a phrase only used one time in Greek in Scripture. It says, where did you doubt? The word literally means, Peter, when were you pulled in two directions? Meaning, yesterday afternoon, you were trying to make me 
emperor. I don't need a campaign manager. I need a follower. I don't need somebody directing me what to do. I need a follower. Will you obey me? And so the Bible says in that moment, he showed them he has power over the wind and the waves. He has power to feed a multitude. They ought to be beginning to realize this is no mere man. So when we pick up John chapter 6, I want us to begin in verse 22 to see because it really explains the very last passage in verses 53 that I want us to look at today. Without this, it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Verse 22, the day after, meaning the day after he fed the 5,000, that crowd that stayed on the other side of the sea knew there had been only one boat. Now, now why'd they know that? We're watching, and if he's not where he was when we left him last night, there's only one boat, so he must have been in it. We don't see him camping here anywhere. They knew there's only one boat. They knew that Jesus had not boarded the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone off alone. And some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they ate the bread after the Lord gave thanks. When the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum, which is where the disciples had been told to go, looking for Jesus. And when they found him on the other side, they said, Rabbi, when did you get here? He doesn't answer the when. He diagnoses the why they're there. Jesus said, I assure you, I know why you're here. You're looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. What does that mean? We don't know, most of us don't know what it's like to be truly hungry. We say we're hungry, meaning I'm, I'm salivating. I had anything in probably 45, 50 minutes, and I just want something to munch. True hunger is cruel. And poverty leaves many people truly hungry. Now imagine you've got children, and they're really hungry, and your wife is really hungry, and your mother-in-law is living with you, and she's always hungry, and you're hungry, and you've got to go work for a living, and you never have enough. And you've gone to an afternoon preaching event and the master that was teaching was also a great feeder. And you not only had a morsel, you had so much your belly was bloated. Would you not say, listen, let's find where he is. I'd like another one of those. I'm hungry. If you've ever been really hungry, you know that once you eat once, you want something else. Because you say, that was so good, I, I want more of that. And so these people, because they were desperately poor, he says, I know why you've come. You're looking for me, verse 26, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate, you were full. Now you say, do it again. And he says, don't work for the food that perishes. That doesn't mean don't work. What he's saying is, don't focus all your life's energy on getting your next meal. So you either eat to live or live to eat. Jesus said, eat to live. Don't live for the next meal. You've known people that spend their lives saying, if I could just have this, and they spend their lives saying, if I could have that promotion, I'd have this house and this car, and I'd be blessed. Well, they spend their lives, and how many times you've read about great men in history, probably some in this room, that say, preacher, I gave my life to try to be president of my company, and along the way I lost my wife, and I got my children so distant from me, they don't even speak to me. And I've had several lawsuits, and I'm telling you, I'm the most miserable man. The doctor says i got ulcers, my blood pressure's high. Why'd you do that? Well, I, I want to be present so bad. Jesus said, don't, don't spend your life working for that which perishes. Work for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Look at that. You don't have to work for his bread. He wants to give you the bread of life. You don't have to work for which the Son of Man will give you, in verse 27, because God the Father set his seal of approval on him. So verse 28, they said, well, then what do you mean? How can we do the work of the kingdom? How do we do the works of God? Please note, if you don't have a pen, you may want to underline it. 
What does it mean to work for God? Verse 29, Jesus said, this is the work of God. Believe in the one he has sent. Now you say, well, duh, that's, I don't think I need to underline that. Yeah, you do. Because what we measure belief is not what scripture means by belief. We'll ask somebody, do you believe in Jesus and pray this prayer? They say a prayer and think, I've said the mantra, I'm in. No, you're not. No, you're not. Did you know in the Old Testament Hebrew, did you know there's not a word for faith? What? You mean when it speaks of Abraham, there's not a word for Abraham had faith in God? No. Did you know there's not a word for Moses had faith in God? The word, there is no Hebrew word for faith. You know what the word is? Faithfulness. You don't have faith. You demonstrate faithfulness. If you truly have faith, you live faithfully before the Almighty. And Jesus said, here's the work of God. Do you believe in me? Then demonstrate with a changed life. Demonstrate with the path of righteousness. Demonstrate with your pursuit of holiness. He said, you really want to know what God's work is? Believe. Be transformed. Be changed. Now, he's going to talk about how we take that change internally and God let God change us. Look at this. He says, verse 29, verse, 20, verse 30. What sign? This is the strangest verse to me. What sign are you going to give us? Now, now excuse me. I'm slow. I'm slow. Did he not just feed 5,000 people yesterday with a sack lunch? And you know what they're saying? Could you do a miracle? How many of y'all ever fed 5,000 with a sack lunch? How many of y'all ever been somewhere where somebody fed everybody with a sack lunch? Don't you think that'd probably count as a miracle? God bless you, Baptist. Yes, it would be. I guarantee if you went and got a three-piece chicken dinner and fed your whole block, they'd call you a miracle. If you go get a bologna sandwich and feed half of your county, they'd say, what a miracle. And yet these people say, uh, are you going to do any kind of miracle? What is that verse? There is no, the, the, none, there are none. <laughs> yeah, I wish I knew it. There's none so blind as those who what? Will not what? Y'all don't know that verse. There are none so blind as those who will not see. The Bible says here, they were saying, is there a sign? And he said, I gave you one. So look at verse 30. What sign are you going to do so we may see the sign and believe you? What are you going to perform? Now notice they're not plussed and changed and impressed with one meal. They're about to tell, you, tell him why. You don't impress us, Jesus. Verse 31. Well, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness for 40 years. It's written, he gave them, he, he meaning this implies... Moses, Moses gave them bread to eat from heaven. What did they just say? You, you really think one barley loaf and a little fish is going to make us think you're the Messiah? Well, God, good night. That's just an appetizer. Moses brought down heaven from heaven manna every morning for 40 years. What are you going to do? Oh, my. Well, let's see what he says. What sign are you going to do that we may see and believe? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, verse 31. Verse 32, Jesus said, I assure you, Moses, number one, was not the source of that bread. He didn't give you. Now, notice the image is eating. They just fed 5,000, just ate with the bread with 5,000. They're still in that image of bread. The bread of God, verse 33. Let me back up, verse 32. I assure you, Moses didn't give you the bread. My Father gives you the real bread from heaven, for the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven. 
And that bread, he said, gives life to the whole world. And what did they say? Sir, give us this bread always. Is that not the very same quote as the woman at the well? When Jesus sitting in Samaria talking to the Samaritan woman and said, Sir, ma'am, I want something to drink. She said, you a Jewish rabbi asking me, a Samaritan woman, for something to drink? He said, I just want water. She said, why would you ask me? He said, well, the truth is, if you would drink of my living water, you'd never thirst again. She said, forevermore, give me this water. Here, the people, the people in the multitude said, you have bread that will give life to the whole world. Verse 34, give us this bread. And she said, I'm glad you asked. Verse 35, I am. I am the bread of life, he told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. No one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me, and yet you don't believe. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. I've come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those. Maybe you ought to mark verse 37 and 39. If you're one of those who says, I think you can lose your salvation, this would be good to... Quote Jesus, next time you have that doubt, verse 37, all who come to me, I will never, what does that mean? Just what it says. All who come to me, I will never cast out. In verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those given to me. So for those of you who think maybe I could lose it, maybe you ought to underline that in big, bold underline to refer to next time you're afraid God's cut you off. Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father. Everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life, and I'll raise Him up on the last day. Verse 41, the Jews started complaining about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they were saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can He say I've come down from heaven? Stop right there one moment. There are those writings in in history called the pseudopigrapha that are writings from ancient times and they were never included in Scripture because they do not speak of Jesus as the Son of God but almost as a magician or or somebody who came with unusual powers and from the beginning he was just doing stuff to fascinate people. In the Apocrypha, one of the miracles of Jesus is in boyhood. It says Jesus even in boyhood had miraculous powers and he amused his friends. One of those is that he knelt down, made a clay, made clay birds out of the uh, clay on the ground, threw the birds up as clay birds. They suddenly gained life, spread their wings, and flew away. That never happened. How do we know? If he had been a magician in boyhood, just like people today, their people be talking, say, "Boy, we got, you need to come over here to Nazareth. We got a kid's carpenter son. I've never seen anything like it." Well, he does miracles just just for fun. I, I've never seen that. He's the most unusual. We may get him a tent of his very own, set him up for a show. I don't Tourism's big. Never happened. How do we know? Because here, even the Jews said, isn't this the son of Joseph and Mary that we know? How in the world can he say he came down from What are they saying? He was just son of a carpenter. Grew, grew up over in that little town of Nazareth. And now he's putting on airs. He's the bread that came down from heaven. Boy, they were ticked. They're about to get more ticked when we get to verse 53. Verse 43 says, Jesus answered them, stop complaining. No one can come to me, verse 43, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up the last day, as it's written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one from God, meaning himself. 
He has seen the Father. Verse 47, I assure you, anyone. We got any anyone's in here? Yep. Anyone who believes has eternal life. Jesus said in verse 48, he had fed to 5,000. They've talked about bread, the living bread. He said, I am the bread. That's the motif of this entire passage. I am the bread of life. Now, there's a difference between me and Moses' bread. He's going to allude to Moses' bread in verse 49. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. I'm different. He said, verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven. Anyone may eat of it and will not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I give is for the life of the world and is my flesh. And at that, the Jews argued, how can this man give us flesh to eat? Verse 53, he's talked about eating the whole chapter. Now look what he says. These verses are difficult if you don't let Scripture be its own commentary. Verse 53, Jesus said, I assure you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Because my flesh is real food, my blood is real drink. And the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me, and I in him. And just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna your fathers ate. They ate the manna and died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. He spoke this thing, these things in the synagogue in Capernaum. He set the Jews on edge. How can he say he's the bread from heaven? We know him. He's right over here in Nazareth. But then when he said, I want you to eat my flesh and drink my blood, they went into orbit. Why? The Old Testament commands from the beginning of the book of Genesis, do not drink or eat the blood of an animal. As early as Genesis chapter 9. Don't turn there, just listen. You can look them up later. Genesis chapter 9, God said, you must not eat the flesh with the lifeblood in it. You've heard of kosher food. Jews, before they eat any meat... And certain foods that they purchase, it has to have on their kosher. And then they approved by a rabbi and his, his name. Meaning, when this animal was slaughtered, a rabbi was at the slaughterhouse. When this food was prepared, a rabbi was in the kitchen to make sure it is, it is prepared exactly as the law requires. A Jew will not eat that which is not approved, not kosher. To have To have meat that's kosher, it means when that animal was killed, a rabbi is standing by to make sure that the blood was drained from the body. And when a Jew eats meat, they're saying there is no blood in the body because Scripture forbids don't eat flesh with the blood in it. In Leviticus 17, it says this, If you eat a bird or an animal, pour out its blood on the ground and cover it with earth, for the life of all flesh is in its blood. Don't partake of the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is in its blood. Leviticus 17, 13, and 14. Why did he say that? Jesus has just said, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they said, boy, you're not only not a rabbi, you're not even a Jew. A good Jew at least knows the Levitical law about eating and drinking blood. A good Jew would say, you don't eat flesh with blood in it, and you've obviously got blood, you're living. What does it mean? Well, let me give you one verse and we're going to explain it. He said in Leviticus 17, 11, the reason I don't want you to eat the blood 
I have assigned it to you for making expiation for your lives upon the altar. It is the blood as life that affects expiation. What? Expiation. Expiation. You remember what we studied in 1 John 2, 2? The Bible says 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. 1 John 2, 1, I don't write these things to you so that you do sin, but if, we, if you sin, we have an advocate with Father, verse 2 of chapter 2, and he is the propitiation for our sin. You remember what I said, propitiation? It means God has an anger against sin. And in case you think that's not true, go to the cross. You don't think God gets mad at anger? Read about Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, God gets angry about sin? Read Sodom and Gomorrah. You don't think God gets angry about sin? Read about the flood. God doesn't find sin attractively cute. He doesn't find it comical. He hates it. And so the Bible says, don't eat what's in the blood. Don't eat the blood because I've designed the blood to be the expiation for your sin. Now, what does that mean? Animals and humans have one thing in common. We both live by blood. Animals have blood in their veins. We have blood in our veins. An animal has no moral capability. That which has no moral capability, God allowed to be a sacrifice for us. Because an animal doesn't sin. It, doesn't, it does what it does by nature. It, it's not a sinner. So, so the blood is not sinful blood. It's animal blood. And God ordained before Jesus came. If you'll sacrifice a four-legged animal, or if you pour a, a dove, if you'll sacrifice the blood and pour out the blood, I'll let the blood be the covering that expiates. The word expiate means to lift the sin from you, to take the sin away and bury it, to cover. There's, uh, he, he, the New Testament said without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. It means covering. And so he says the lifeblood in an animal is the way that you can be free because when that life for life is given, the lifeblood is poured out in place of your blood, and I let that be the payment for your sin. That's the fine paid. That's the price paid to redeem you from your sin. And so when the blood of that animal goes out on the ground, it's as if your very blood should have, but God said, I'll take that blood as a sacrifice in your place. But then he said, don't you eat or drink blood. Why? Whatever we begin to eat and drink often, we treat common. One of the problems in the 21st century, we've lost the fear of the holiness of God. I think most everybody's pretty comfortable. Like, you know, God loves us. He's our friend. I think we've forgotten he's also a righteous judge and judgment on sin is coming. And he said, don't you drink the blood because if you start drinking and eating the blood in an animal, you'll forget it's only by blood that you have any hope of salvation. Whatever you treat as common, you cease to treat as sacred. So Jesus said, the Old Testament said, don't, don't drink the blood. And yet Jesus said, but I, you have to drink my blood and eat my flesh. What does that mean? What happens when we eat something? See, I, I'm sure, I hope it's not true of any of you. But in crowd this size, there's probably a handful that say, well, now, preacher, I find the Bible interesting academically, and I come to church because I find it stimulating. Well, that's great, but he didn't want you to have a book appreciation study. There are people all their lives say, well, now, I think I know about Jesus. I've studied this, but I keep coming. I get little nuances of his life, and I find him fascinating. He didn't come to fascinate you. The Bible says he came to save you. 
And so if he's going to save me, there has to be some transaction of him literally coming into my life and taking over. They use an entire chapter to talk about eating. When I eat something, there's an old adage that says, you are what you eat. So he says, come here. I'm not interested in you just studying me. I want you to be a part of me. And so he says, I want you to eat my flesh. What does eating do? When we eat, we're nourished and sustained and renewed and energized and strengthened. The Bible says, eat my flesh. Why? Because of taking me in. Letting me come into your life and become a part of you and you be a part of me. When that happens, he says, I'll nourish your soul. I'll sustain you. I'll give you strength. I'll renew you when you're discouraged. I'll I'll strengthen you and energize you. I'll comfort you. And by the way, along the way, I will give my life for your life. And my life-giving spirit will fill your spirit so that you are no longer your own. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, yet I live nevertheless. Not I, but Christ lives in me. He says, don't don't, don't stand afar and kind of give me the once over. Don't just say, well, I'm, I'm considering him. He said, I'm the bread from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will never hunger and never thirst forever. Why? I'm not like Moses in the wilderness who received from God manna that sustained them 40 years. I want you to have something that's going to cause you to have life forevermore. And then he talked about the cup. I want to share one insight. I've been studying I've been studying the Lord's Supper for a long time as a pastor, but I found something new. You understand the Gospels don't clarify, they don't state that Jesus drank the cup that he offered the disciples. It says he took the cup and he passed it to them. I was reading this week and found a most marvelous study. It said in the in the in the Lord's Supper, excuse me, in the Passover, there are four cups. First two are during the meal. The third one's after the meal, and the, and the last one is uh, the meal, the, the cup that you drink normally as you wrap up the meal and go home. Jesus only drank two of them. In the Passover meal, the first cup is thank you God for delivering us from slavery, and they drink the cup of being set free. And then the second cup, thank you for getting us out of Egypt. We're no longer strangers. We have our own land. Thank you. The third cup is the cup of redemption. And the fourth cup, thank you for making us a nation. Jesus took the one and shared the meal that says, thank you for no longer making us slaves. Thank you for allowing us to leave the land of iniquity to go to the land of promise. But the Bible says when we got to the third cup, it was after dinner. I'd never seen this before. The Bible says he took the cup and he offered it to the disciples. He said, this, th- this cup is the new covenant in my blood. I'll not drink it with you again until I drink it new in my Father's kingdom. But the third cup is the cup of redemption. Here's, here's the problem. Why would he not drink that cup? Because redemption was not yet. You can't drink a cup of redemption if there's not yet been the price paid to redeem. If a slave is going to be redeemed from bondage, somebody has to pay the price for that slave to go free. 
If a prisoner is going to get out of prison and what stands away is a huge debt that he has not repaid, somebody of wealth has to come pay out the debt before the judge will even consider saying, you're free to go. But nobody had paid the debt and Jesus couldn't drink a cup of redemption when the debt was not yet paid because he had come to pay the debt for sin. And so he offered the cup of redemption to the men in promise but he had not yet taken that cup. Do you remember when James and John had their mother come to Jesus and say, can we sit on your right hand and on your left? Do you remember the question he asked them? Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And not having a clue what that meant. Yes, Lord, we can. He said, you will. But it's not mine to give you right and left hand of the Father. That's up to the Father. What is that cup? See, if there's redemption to be offered, there has to be a payment paid. Oh, my. When he was at the Lord's Supper, he had not yet gone to Gethsemane. And he would not yet paid for our redemption. There was a cup that he could not yet drink, though he was about to. The cup of redemption. You see, the Bible says that night, after the dinner he gave them the bread and the cup and they departed singing it never mentions the fourth cup and it doesn't say he drank the third cup he didn't drink the cup of redemption and he didn't drink the cup that we are now a nation of God because he said I'll drink it new in the kingdom what in the world does it mean I can't drink yet the cup of redemption do you remember when Jesus took his disciples out to Gethsemane I've told you many times that area we know that shortly after Jesus, there was a census taken, and, and the census takers wondered how many people come to Passover? Well, who could count them? But here's what they knew the law says sacrifice one lamb for every ten. And the year that they wanted to have the census, how many people were in Jerusalem? They counted the number of lambs slaughtered, it was 200,000. You multiply 200,000 by 10, you got 2 million people trying to get into Wall City. That's impossible. But mama's there and daddy's there. By law, we want to be there for the Passover. So what would they do? They'd camp all along the hills around Jerusalem. So in the passive spring of the year, it's a wonderful time to be out there. Kids are playing. You say, well, it's late night. Yeah, it is. But who goes to bed when you're on vacation? having a great time and the, the hill uh, uh, the, the Mount of Olives that been, Eastern Gate looks this way right into the Mount of Olives and they've been alive with campfires and could heard the laughter and talking and I mean it's like stars suddenly have, filled, have fallen from heaven and just littering the Mount of Olives you see all those fires but Jesus had a place that a friend had offered him that was walled in it was a guarded garden of olive trees They'd often been there. The Bible says Jesus knew exactly where to go, for frequently they visited this place. And Jesus goes there, and you know the story. He asked the disciples to pray. He left, he left the group, the main group of men here. He, he left eight of them. Judas already left, so eight are here praying. And then he takes three, Peter, James, and John, and he stations them a little further. And it says he goes a stone's throw. It doesn't mean a baseball pitch. It means if I tossed a pebble, he's right there. They only heard him pray one phrase, but they never forgot it because he didn't drink the cup of redemption. He finished the supper with a song. But they heard him say a most amazing thing when suddenly the sins of all of us. Listen, I know how bad I feel when God brings my sins to memory. Can you imagine being getting ready to go to the cross to pay for every sin of every person that's ever lived in every nation? No wonder his brow broke with drops of blood. And what did he pray? He prayed about a cup. 
He'd just given them a cup of redemption for them to drink, but he comes to God about a cup. Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy be on what cup? The cup of redemption is never sealed until the price is paid. Lord, would you let this cup pass from me? He said, I know we've talked about this cup since before the, the world was. And God, it's now time for me to pay the awesome price for sin's penalty. Is there any other way? I haven't drunk the cup yet, but I'm about to unless you tell me there's a plan B. And there was no plan B. Jesus goes to the cross to pay the penalty. He's hanging there for six hours. The cross is cruel because a man drains all his bodily fluids. We know he has wounds in his hands, his feet, his side, his back is raw from a beating. He's got a crown of thorns around him. He's, he's bloody. And what happens when you lose your blood, you lose the fluids and your mouth gets very dry. And we're told in crucifixion many times a mouth, the tongue would swell from lack of moisture and it'd fill the cavity of your mouth and you couldn't talk. Jesus hadn't tasted fully the cup of redemption. He's tasted the price, but there was a cup. Do you remember what was at the base of the cross? The Bible says there was a, a, a container of cheap wine vinegar. You ever been really thirsty and say, could I please have some vinegar? I'm really thirsty. Jesus shouted, I thirst. Mouth was swollen, tongue was swollen, body was hurting. Soldier standing by took a sponge and dipped it into that old vinegar and he put it on a hyssop branch. Don't ever think that's coincidence. That's pointing right back to Passover, which is where this is birthed. The Bible says on the night that Jesus said, if you'll put the blood of a lamb on the doorpost and the lintel, if you'll put the blood on the doorpost and the lintel, I will pass over and cover you. He said, take the blood and dip a hyssop, dip a hyssop branch in the blood and sprinkle the blood on the doorpost and lintel. At the cross, it was a hyssop branch that was put with a sponge with old cheap wine vinegar and handed, put up to the lips of Jesus, just enough to moisten his lips. You ever visited somebody who's been in the hospital a long time and now they're not, it says in, on the sign, NPO, nothing by mouth. And so the loved one will sit there with a little pink sponge on a stick and keep it moist and just wet the lips to keep them moist. And lift a little bit on the tongue, keep the tongue from swelling. They took that old cheap vinegar. You ever tasted vinegar and said, could I have a glass of that, please? Jesus didn't drink the cup of wine. I, I don't know what wine is. I haven't drunk wine, but I'm told it's, certain wines are sweet. I've tasted vinegar, and I never got a sweet one. And when they put that sponge to his mouth, he tasted the cup, the bitter, awful, enamel, cringing taste of vinegar, which is the taste of sin when it's finished, brings forth death. He didn't drink the cup of redemption with the disciples because the price had not yet been paid. But when the sponge went to his mouth... It was enough to get the taste and to swallow a taste of that bitter cup, the cup of redemption, so it could make the world's greatest announcement. It is finished. 
The word means paid in full. Jesus drank that cup. He drank the cup saying, thank you that we're no longer slaves. Thank you for delivering us from Egypt. Thank you now, Lord, on the cross for your redemption. But guess what? He said, there's one more cup. And he didn't drink it at the Passover. He said, I'll not drink it with you again until I drink it new in my Father's kingdom. One day soon, the heavens are going to open. And we're going to hear the shout of the archangel, the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. And so shall we be caught up in the air to be with the Lord in the air forevermore. And scholars tell us for seven years the earth is going to go through a horrendous tribulation because the Christians and the Holy Spirit have been taken out. So what are we doing while the world's going through that horror? We're sitting down at the banquet feast of the Lamb. And He'll take that fourth cup. I've been waiting for you. This is the cup with your name on it. You are a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, set free at home now with God, at home forevermore as the chosen people of the Almighty. I'm going to just give you a little cup in a minute. But boy, it's mighty in its power. For it's a picture of all Jesus offered to us when we take him in like bread and drink his blood as a life-giving cleanser to rid us of all sin, to write our name in his book and to grant to us eternal life. What a moment we're about to have in the presence of our Lord. Pray with me, would you? Father, we thank you today for the privilege of having the Lord's Supper You asked us to do one thing when we came to this table. You said, remember me. I pray that we have, and I pray that we will in these next few moments, point us straight to the face of Jesus, and let us be rejoicing in our hearts and in our lives that we know what it is to have been made clean forever by the sacrifice of the Son of God. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Deacons, would you come please?
into this mystery. Say, take this bread, take this wine, now the simple may divine for any to receive. By your mercy we come to your table. By your grace you are making us faithful. Lord, we
Would you pray with me? We never come to this moment, our Father, that we're not amazed at the plan of God that knew we would be sinners before the foundation of the world and created us anyway to endure every rebellion and every profanity and every violent act of violence. And yet you gave us life, knowing we would run from you and often disappoint you and many times blaspheme your very name. You love us. That, that's the mystery. Enough to give your son and place on him who had no sin uh, all of our sins. No wonder when he prayed it was like sweating drops of blood. What a, what a burden. We hold in our hand a wafer which represents the body on which the sins of the world were placed. The Lamb of God took our sin and nailed those sins to a cross to be remembered against us no more. Today we want to do what you said. We just want to remember you and say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible says Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and said, This is my body which is offered for you to do this in remembrance of me.
Pray with me, would you? Father, you said the life is in the blood, and we now know that scientifically, but we also know it experientially. We were covered with the blood of Christ. We stand in the sacrifice of Jesus. We have no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved, but then we're not looking for another. We're very satisfied that the Jesus we know pay the satisfactory price for our sin, came alive from the grave to satisfy the Father, has offered life to all who believe in Him. We state today our belief, and as we drink this cup, we're indicating we want to take you into our lives. We don't want to just study you. We don't want to just know about you. We want to know you and live for you. So, Lord Jesus, as we drink of this cup, may it be truly a covenant of agreement between every follower here and our Lord Jesus, that we've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. Please help us in Jesus' name. After dinner, Jesus gave the disciples the cup, and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. I will not drink this with you again until I drink it new in my Father's kingdom.